Thank you for listening. This is Israel Rebound, a podcast joining Jews and others in Nebraska to, to Israel exploring the ties that bind us through culture, identity, and current events. I'm Alan Padesh in Omaha, and I'm joined with my co-host Liz Felstern in Jerusalem. Liz, how are you today? Hi, Alan. I'm doing really well. How are you? I'm doing fine. Thank you. So I think that today we're going to kind of carry over our conversation that we started last, well, two weeks ago, because I was on vacation last week, so we didn't have a podcast last week, but about uh, Jewish identity in America and the challenges of when um, you want to support a cause, but you're being um, excluded because you identify uh, strongly with Israel. So I know that in America, we've had these challenges with social justice programs where it would be natural for people in the Jewish community to participate in, but yet um, the organizers of that event make it clear that if you support Israel, you cannot be uh, a part of this rally. Have you been following any of these types of situations? Yeah, so I think this was something that came up a, a couple of times in the past year, particularly with various pride parades that members of the Jewish community felt excluded or were specifically told that they could not be part of them. There are people that had pride flags that included, um, again, David, a star of David, and were told that they couldn't, you know, be part of it. And it seems that this trend of various progressive movements, be it uh, Black Lives Matter or, um, or other causes, certain people have decided that you can't be in that cause if you're also a supporter of Israel, that those two are somehow mutually exclusive when really they're two totally different topics and and I would say, you know, different parts of one's identity. Now, we might even be able to sit, go so far as to say the complete opposite, right? I would probably say the opposite, that a person who proudly supports Israel is somebody who's interested in social justice and um, and and that, that, that social justice is one of the pillars upon which Israel was founded. But fine, let's put that aside. I think we should certainly all be able to agree that that what these activists are saying is not true, right? That the it isn't that um, supporters of progressive causes can only be aligned with a pro-Palestinian point of view. Right. So you talked about the the complexities of identity. So the support that one has for Israel comes from this identity. The support for this cause over here, the social justice cause, is another part of your identity. And you talked before about the uh, using a Venn diagram to explain these different identities or different causes. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah. So, you know, I think what you and I were talking about is that the, the attempt that seems to be being made on the part of uh, some uh, progressives or, or left-leaning activists is that they know that a person who's in their camp must also be in the pro-Palestinian camp, which means 
that a person who's in a pro-Israel camp cannot possibly agree with them or actually or really support their cause, right? Which is a huge presumption. And it puts, it draws these very neat circles that, you know, never the two shall meet. When I think what we all know is really true is that that's not how human beings are. That's not how the world is. And that it looks much more like you said now, like a Venn diagram, right? All of these circles can and do overlap in different ways. And a person can hold any one of a whole range of views on Israel, while at the same time holding any one of a range of views on lots of other social justice issues. So if I hear you, you're saying that you can have multiple ideas, multiple views, multiple values, uh, and be uh, able to communicate those. But when you're addressing a situation where there's one idea, one, one perspective, that one perspective doesn't allow those multiple opinions or values to come in. And that's where the, the challenge is for, uh, I would say, people of like-minded social justice goals are kind of challenged by institutions or individual groups that are focused just on one cause. And knowing that Israel, as you said, is really a country built on social justice, although we could talk a little bit more about what social justice looks like in Israel, um, but it's the challenges that Israel exists, that has today, that causes some of these groups in the states to exclude uh, people who support Israel. So I'm trying to make a circle here of your Venn diagram. And if I'm pro-Israel on one side and I'm pro-Palestinian on the other, there's there's got to be a bridge in between in that, in that um, space of the Venn diagram. Would you say that I'm on the right track of thinking the way you are in that way? Or am I completely off base? You're never off base. Um, yeah, I mean, look, um, I would say that, you know, on any of these topics, people have a whole range of views and, and reasons that they feel why they feel. And some of it is just because, and some of it is based on, you know, knowledge or experience. I am, but where a person stands in terms of Israel, I would say, has nothing to do with where they stand in terms of LGBT rights, in terms of Black Lives Matter, I am, right? In terms of these very American particular issues, I do think that there is a, a, a correlation between how one feels about Israel and how one feels more broadly, maybe about social justice, sort of as I intimated before, and about human beings and, and human rights. But it's not fair to put all of that into the very specific context of how these particular social justice movements are playing out in the United States, right? That's a very specific con context. I am. Um, and I would say that there that there isn't a, a relation between those two, if if that makes sense, right? You can feel whatever you want to feel about Israel, and maybe you identify with a, and want to march in a pride parade, and maybe you want to support Black Lives Matter, and maybe neither one of those are important to you. And I think the same could certainly be said of people who are pro Palestinian, 
not everybody who's pro-Palestinian is interested in Black Lives Matter either, right? Well, I, I don't know because I'm not in those circles, but I think that what you're touching on is accurate in the sense that we we have, <clears throat> excuse me, we have the ability to hold multiple ideas and have conversations around them, but we seem to get ourselves caught up in situations where we can't expand on our ideas when other sides don't want to listen to our ideas. Uh, and I shared, shared with you before that I just came back from a, a little mini vacation to Germany and to Prague uh, and to be in the kind of in the seat of where the planning of the Holocaust took place in Germany and knowing how challenging it is for people today to just think about um, what took place and how to deal with it. Um, I'm, I'm struggling based on kind of the greater conversation what we're having of whether or not in America, if we're teaching people how to really understand the complexities of the world and to be able to have um, an understanding of one issue and being able to accept other issues and to talk about them in a different way. And I think part of what I take away from my recent trip and the conversations I've had is that you have to deal with the history so you can move forward into the future. And I think Germany has kind of worked on that. And it kind of ties into a little bit of what we're loosely talking about in terms of groups accepting and not accepting other groups. Um, I, I could kind of ramble on and on, but I, I hope you understand what I'm trying to get at is that I think in America, we're not open to other people's ideas as easily as somebody who's addressed the challenges of their 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 past um, before. And I think something similar could be said about Israel, right? Israel is also in that place of needing to address past mistakes while still dealing with present day challenges. Um, I think with that, though, there is a tension, um, which which is not new, and I think we've probably even talked about this before, but that um of from the perspective of Israel and people who support Israel, why Israel keeps getting singled out, right? Like nobody is marching in these uh, parades and saying, oh, you, you know, you're uh, from some other country that has a history of wrongdoing. You can't be here. You don't belong here. It's only Israel, right? We've talked about in the United Nations how Israel is singled out. Like, and so there is a tension between wanting to say, yes, we Israel have made mistakes and we need to account for those and we need to recognize them and we need to do better. But on the other hand, saying, but you're why are you picking on us? Go talk to somebody else who's also doing, right? Has done or or is doing things that aren't completely in line with a fully modern progressive agenda. So I think you've just touched on anti-Semitism. And in the, in yes, I use that thing. <laughs> yeah. And I think that I, I, I often use Sharansky's, you know, 3D mm -hmm. philosophy. So the double standard. So to your point, you know, why are you singling out Israel if you're not looking at other countries? And I'm not going to call it any other country today, but you know, the world is it's challenged with civil rights and social justice 
almost everywhere. But because Israel is so prevalent and so in the media, it's easy to point fingers at, at Israel. Uh, and right. I, think I think many of those people that are holding <clears throat> Israel to a double standard are completely unaware of it. They don't know that there are other countries that are currently doing all sorts of horrible human rights violations, right? And things that they would totally not support and be aghast by because they don't hear about it. For whatever reason, the headlines are filled with Israel. As I've shared before, that uh, at one time when I was living in Israel, there were more journalists in Israel than any place except for Washington, D.C. and New York. So we know that Israel is in the news and it's in the forefront of, of you know, almost daily media issues. Um, and I think that that's why people are so quick to judge Israel. They see it in the, um, on the airwaves and now in the social media sphere all the time. We don't see that about other countries. I, I think that we could carry on this conversation uh, quite in depth because you just touched on what I think is the, the central point, and it's understanding what anti-Semitism really is and how it manifests itself. And today we see it manifesting significantly more so than I think in almost any other time in my lifetime as, a, as an adult, um, it's everywhere. And part of it's, the reason it's everywhere is because of social media. The same reason why Israel is so much in the news, anti-Semitism anti gets reported on a much greater level today in all the different formats that is available uh, than it has in the past. So we see more and more of it. Um, we're also coming on uh, the anniversary of the Tree of Life uh, massacre that took place several years ago. And so again, in the Jewish world, we see these um, monumental moments that we draw upon. I want to take us to a lighter point, if you're okay with that. Hanukkah. Yes, ha <laughs> so Hanukkah is around the corner. And as uh, we've talked about before, I was supposed to be in Israel at this time so we could do a taste testing of Sufganiyo together. And to comment kind of from a, an amateur chef's perspective, what makes up a good donut? So I'm not there with you. So you're going to be on assignment. And you have to help us find the perfect uh, Sufganiyo. Hanukkah is in a couple of weeks. And I'm sure that uh, the donuts are on display all over the place. What have you they seen? Sure are. What have you seen lately that you want to talk about? Um, well, they're they're definitely out. I am, and they are as multicolored and multi-toppinged as you probably recall from previous years. I haven't been looking too closely because uh, it's a little early. I don't want to start and and uh, I don't know die of a heart attack from too much oil before I even get to Hanukkah. I got to pace myself here a little bit. Um, but uh, but I have seen that some that look awfully big, which I'm surprised by, you know, for, for a number of years, there was a trend that the Sufganiyot were sort of getting smaller and smaller, which I had attributed to people maybe being more health conscious, but not now. I don't know if it's a post-COVID thing and people are like, carpe diem, we're going to eat Sufganiyot while we can or what? But they're looking exceptionally large this year in some places. I did notice that. Um, and uh, and I will definitely do some more looking and tasting 
uh, on your behalf, just just for you, Alan. I won't promise to taste plenty of soup ganio. So, so thank you for on my behalf. Let me ask you a, a cultural question: Are there Sufganiyot competitions? Are there chefs, bakers, um, doing commentary or analysis of this Sufganiya or this Sufganiya? Is it mainstream celebratory, or is it just in the shuk in the marketplace? And you go to the bakery and you get what you want. So, I mean, it's you can find Sufganiyot everywhere. I am from like very simple, inexpensive ones that you could buy on a street corner, in a shuk, in a supermarket to much fancier, more, you know, exclusive bakery, patissier type of ones. Um, so there's that whole range. And they the price, I mean, they can cost, you know, five times as much. For a fancy one, which is de- which is smaller also than the simple one, <laughs> I um I haven't seen competitions. I don't know if chefs really consider them a food that's worthy of well, judging. Well, so there's a creative process to some, uh, <coughs> excuse me, some of the sufganiya that you're you know possibly going to reference in our future conversation. Um, you know, one of the shows that we like to watch um, is the British Baking Competition, British Baking Show. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if there are shows like that um, in Israel that reflect the holiday fair of Hanukkah or maybe, I know, Purim or Passover or other things. Because um, I think there's... I mean, there, great... there are some cooking competitions. There was a Master Chef, you know, Israel competition, which actually on a totally side separate note, last week I ate in a restaurant in Lod, which is run by a woman who was on MasterChef two years ago and did very well. So that was kind of fun. I, a Tunisian restaurant. Um, but, uh, but specifically of holiday themed competitions, I don't know. Many years ago, I did see a competition for uh, and it was around the holiday theme. It was someone making chopped liver, and this was the fanciest chop. First of all, I don't eat chopped liver. I will say that right now. <laughs> I do not eat chopped liver. Full, full I make disclosure. a great. I make a great mock chopped liver. If anybody wants my recipe, it has been acclaimed widely. Um, canned peas is my secret, and a lot of fried onions. Um. But uh, but this was a, a, a cooking show and the guy was really into this holiday chopped liver um, that was made with something I didn't even know existed until I saw this cooking episode, which was with uh, unborn eggs, where they take the eggs out of the chicken before they get a shell around them, like before they turn into an egg which is a thing and interesting from a Jewish perspective, you know, eggs, a regular egg that we are familiar with are considered par, right. In terms of kosher dietary laws, they are neither meat nor dairy. The, the unborn eggs that come directly out of the chicken are considered meat. Um, even though it looks just like an egg without a shell, right. You can see the clearish part and the yellow part. It's just, it's, it's just the embryo, is it? I mean, I, I'm trying to visualize what I, an an egg freshly out of a chicken. It looks that like isn't an egg any... without a shell. 
I've seen them for sale here in the supermarket also, we, frozen. We call, we call those extrovert um, eggs. That's extrovert eggs? It's a joke. It was us for the moment. Unborn or unhatched. I don't, I don't know. And I think that's what they're called in English. I don't know. Your your boys will know better. But um, but he used those in the chopped liver. He, in this this show that I saw that apparently was a very important part of the recipe. Uh, that I have to kind of look that one up because I'm I'm completely baffled. Baffled. And the reason I said it's an extrovert egg is because introverts are known to have a shell around them. Right, and these ones don't have a shell. Lost, lost in translation. Sorry. No, that's that's okay. Um, you know, one of the reasons why I think about Hanukkah and competition, you know, cooking competition or bakery competition shows is because with the past uh, yesterday was was Halloween in America, and there are all sorts of baking shows making your Halloween you know crazy. Mm. Um, Desserts. My kids tried to trick or treat. It did not work very well. They went only to, only to our neighbors across the hall, who we thought would know what Halloween is at least. They're both uh, like Jonathan, my husband, you know, born and raised here in Israel, but their parents are Americans, and so we thought they'll know what it means. So our kids, you know, didn't put on a full costume, but they did pull some, you know, hat out of the dress up box. And they went across the hall and they knocked on the door and they said trick or treat and they they said what 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 are you talking about? That's that's <laughs> actually now they did wind up getting candy somehow anyway because they know how to get candy but the <laughs> but the trick or treating part didn't exactly work. Well, that's that's the goal of Halloween is to get candy. It doesn't matter how you do it, um, with a with a costume or not. Um, but uh, that that's actually a, that's cute that your your kids did that. Um, I think that uh, when we speak next week, um, I'd like to kind of look a little more into the conversation we started with, and that's just about Jewish identity and how it's challenging for many people in America to address the 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 app the opportunities to be supportive of being Jewish and support of Israel, but to have these also strong social justice values. And I use the the donut as an example. You're going to laugh at this, so just bear with me. I'm ready. Um, I do not really enjoy a donut that has cream on the inside. So I would be an anti-creamer. I like a nice classic glazed donut with a hole in it. And that's me. So we have people that like donuts with stuffing. And we're like, and there are people that like to have donuts with holes in them. So, but I can accept, I can accept the, the different, um, I'm going way off base here, but um, I, I can accept yes, the fact that somebody. <laughs> our listeners know that we understand that these issues are much deeper and people have much stronger feelings about them than they do about donuts. So we will conclude this in, in another time. Uh, I just want to thank you, Liz, for your time today and thank our listeners uh, who are listening to us uh, again? This is Israel Rebound, and we look forward to having more conversation around identity and uh, donuts. And maybe there's a a correlation. Thank Thanks, you, Alan. <laughs>